Howdy folks, Chuck here. We got a great show for you this week. I am sharing the audio from the panel discussion that I was on a couple weeks ago at the Appalachian Studies Association conference where we talked about new media, code switching, and a lot more. I was on that panel with two incredibly accomplished and talented people, way more impressive than me, Crystal Good and Dr. Nkeshi Elamin uh, from Black by God and Black in Appalachia, respectively. I think you all really enjoyed this conversation. It got really deep. We talked about code switching, identity, how we try to communicate to other Appalachians in a new media environment. So I think you all will enjoy the conversation and especially hearing from Crystal Good and Dr. Elami. So you'll be hearing that shortly. I wanted to share, John is on leave again this week. That's why we're sharing this for the regular episode slot. But you will be back next week. We will be back on our regularly scheduled programming schedule. Very excited about that. We got a lot of stuff planned for you. And when I say that, like, I mean it. I mean, we got got a lot in the work, folks. We got we got witchcraft. We've got stereotypes. We've got public school teachers. We got it all. So stay tuned for that. And I hope that you all enjoy this discussion. I know I did, and I was extremely grateful to be invited to be on this panel, especially to be amongst people that quite frankly, were way, 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 way more impressive than I was. There might be some days that I don't feel. Maybe some days I don't feel. Hello, welcome to our second and last plenary session. I'm so glad to see so many of you here. I think this is going to be an awesome session. I'm so excited about it. Um, I am fangirling a little bit because this is so great. Um, so this plenary is entitled New Media in Appalachia, Empowering Our Communities Through Storytelling. Um, and I'm so very excited to welcome our four panelists who will be discussing how they're using new methods of storytelling to empower Appalachian people and change how the nation and the world perceive Appalachia. Um, so I'm just going to introduce all of our speakers, then I'm going to leave and hand it all over to them. Um, so first, I would like to introduce Ashton Mara, who was so kind to organize this panel. Um, I had the idea, and I just asked Ashton if she would do it. <laughs> so that made me very happy. Uh, <laughs> Ashton Mara is a teaching assistant professor here at WVU in the Reed School of oh, the Reed College of Media and the executive director of 100 Days in Appalachia, 2001 National Edward R. Murrow award-winning publication. There, she oversees the work of a team of editors, contributors, and reporters across Appalachia to create content by Appalachians for Appalachians. She is also the co-founder of Reporting on Addiction, a collaborative project working to train professional and student journalists in social, or I'm sorry, in solutions-focused journalism methods and to help break the cycle of stigma, often perpetuated through media coverage in our communities. She spent more than a decade working as a professional journalist for both public media and commercial news outlets. And this is Ashton. Uh, next we have Chuck Cora, a native of Parkersburg, West Virginia, and an Appalachian expat who spent the first 22 years of his life in the Mountain State. You don't look that old. Anyway. Thank you. 
Uh, he earned his bachelor's from Shepherd University and JD from Michigan State College of Law. After law school, Chuck spent several years in Nashville working on a progressive advo- working on progressive ag- advocacy and public affairs campaign throughout all parts of Tennessee, and helped advise local political campaigns in Tennessee and West Virginia. Chuck is the co-founder, co-host, and producer of the podcast Apodlacha. Okay. I've been I've been practicing that one. I still don't feel good about it, <laughs> uh, which seeks to provide a counter-narrative to the negative portrayal and harmful stereotypes of Appalachia. He currently works in civic education advocacy and lives in Northern Virginia with his wife, Kristen. Um, and next here on our panel, we have, a, she's, she told me four times how to say her name, Nkeshi Alameen. How did I do, Nkeshi? Excellent. Um, and Keshi Alameen uses her voice as a co-host for the Black and Appalachia podcast and as a lecturer at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, where she earned her PhD in sociology. Her research explores the link between race, place, and black practices in defining, contesting, and reimagining place. Through this work, she builds bridges between academia and local communities. In response to finding feelings of displacement and loss of space for black communities in her research, Nkeshi founded The Bottom in East Knoxville as a hub to build community, celebrate culture, and engage in the creativity of black people. Through sharing resources like The Bookshop at the Bottom and ongoing project, projects like Sew It, Sell It, Nkeshi has made a space to welcome people and amplify black voices. And last but not least, we have Afrolachian writer-poet Crystal Good. This is the third time I've introduced Crystal because she's done everything for us. And she just told me I had to freestyle her introduction. And I don't do that. So I will be reading the same introduction. (laughs) Crystal Good is a writer, an artist, whose work seeks to build a more inclusive and truthful narrative about Central Appalachia. A native West Virginian, Good is the founder and publisher of Black by God, the West Virginian, a print and multimedia publication centering black voices to address the information gap. She is also the author of Valley Girl and holds what she says is the completely made up but totally sincere office of social media senator for the Digital District of West Virginia, which encourages digital and political literacy. Please welcome all of our speakers. Thank you, and thank you all for taking the time to join us this afternoon on this Saturday that was beautiful when it came in, and now I think is raining, and so we're glad to have you here. Um, I want to make one announcement before we get started today. We are actually, you know, you've got a stage full of content creators, and so we are making content today. We are recording this session, and I'm hoping to take some audience questions near the end of the panel, so just keep that in mind. If you want to ask a question, I'm going to ask you to come all the way down here so you can speak into this microphone, and we can record the audio um, for, you know, potentially any of our platforms after the fact, Um, but we are making radio today. We are not making television, so don't be afraid. (laughs) So I want to start... Actually, I'm going to be that person that starts their panel with a quote, (laughs) Um, which feels like kind of cheesy, but I think it's a really good one. Media magnifies power. It also exposes those who have none, but that lack of power is only retold to those who don't have it. And Crystal Good is actually the person who wrote that. Um, (laughs) 
ahead, Crystal. In what I think is an unpublished essay that you sent me a couple months ago, but for, for us to think about framing this conversation, which I have to come back to you because we really need to publish that essay. But in that context of, of power, I'd like to start with each of you. Can you give us a brief introduction um, to your publications, your platforms, and how what you're doing intersects with the power narratives of Appalachia. And Crystal, I'm actually going to ask you to go first. <laughs> this is working? Okay, good. Um, <clears throat> well, Black by God, the West Virginian, uh, you can follow us on blackbygod.org. You can do it right now on your phones, right? You can just pull them out and go to blackbygod.org and sign up for the newsletter. Um, and, you know, we, I'm, I'm creating content there, trying very hard to put... Uh, an article out at least once a week, original content um, from West Virginia writers or from the diaspora. Um, but I also have a newsletter that I started about two years ago. Um, and that's what's turned into the website and has turned into the print, um, which I, maybe we'll play a game at the end because I have a few limited copies here. Um, but, you know, Sometimes I laugh because it's like you have to be really pissed off to start your own newspaper, right? And then just drive it around the state or some delusional person. But, but media is, is, is power, and that is why in West Virginia we have, just like the narrative in the, in the, in the country, right? <laughs> White men own all of the media conglomerates, Look at, you know, this is just how it works. Um, and then there's a wonderful project that I really hope you all can um, look at. It's Media 2070. And it's really looking at the genesis of media and its roots in slave ads, right? I mean, every, every major media publication has roots and built their empires, right, on the ads of humans, selling humans, finding humans, right? And so, you know, that's one way to look at how the power moves through media. But in building Black by God, the power moves in, in the community of the people that find a place and find an ear or, you know, to listen to their stories. And that to me is so um, encouraging and beautiful as a creative, looking at media as a, as a creative space to, you know, to build with people, to build stories with people, to exchange with people. Um, but I also just, to, you know, I spent several years lobbying at the West Virginia legislature, um, which you can learn a lot there. And I didn't have a lot of power as a grassroots environmental lobbyist trying to fight for clean air and clean water and, you know, like women's health and, you know, things like that. Um, no power in the sense of like funding and blah, blah, blah. But what I had and what we have is people power. And so I recognized very quickly, right, that I could send out a tweet or make a Facebook post and that you would share it and then you would share it. And then all of a sudden, even though, right, that might not translate directly into a lawmaker changing their vote, but they felt it, right? Um, and so I just, that is my inspiration because that's what I know about people power and what I know when people get information that, you know, I trust everybody in this room. If you know something, you will do something. So what we're missing in that bridge building is how do we get the information to the people? And Black by God is seeking to just do that, to be a part of bridging the information gap, whatever that information may be from a, a COVID vaccine, and then centering it in the voice of the people 
Uh, I don't know what that really means, but I just mean it's straight talk, you know, and centering it in ways that will speak to uh, especially the black community in this. This is this, the project that is in my hands right now because, you know, one of the things that I keep top of mind is a quote from Pastor Watts, and some of you all may know him from Charleston in Kanawha County. Um, he says that even when the white reporters get it wrong, it's all we have. And I don't want to live in that paradigm anymore. Um, okay, Ashton, I can keep going, but I'm just going to stop there. <laughs> and Keshi, what, does, what do those power narratives mean for black in Appalachia? Uh, so just so, for people who are not familiar, Black in Appalachia, the podcast is just one component of a larger project that is um, seeking to change how we think about Appalachia, what we think about when we, when we hear the term Appalachia, right? Um, and so, you know, what, what we do is highlight the history and the stories of black people, the experiences of black people, historically as well as contemporarily, um, and bring them to the forefront as, as um, showing the ways that black people have contributed to what Appalachia is, right, and how we shape this region. Um, and so, we intersect with power in so many different ways, right? When I was thinking about this question, I could, you know, probably um, list, at, you know, several different ways that we intersect with, with power. But I think just in producing our podcast and just in doing our work, we are challenging power, right? We're challenging um, white supremacy, right? And, and if you think about white supremacy, power is a cornerstone of white supremacy, right? Um, just about everything, just about um, life in America, whether it be in Appalachia or elsewhere, is shaped by race and racism, right? And, and power is central to that, right? So just in doing our work, we're saying, we're turning this, um, we're turning white supremacy on top of his head. We're turning the idea of what Appalachia is over and we're saying, nah, let us tell you what Appalachia is, right? Mm -hmm. um, so we hang out in that space when it comes to power. Um, but we also, you know, when we think about this depiction of Appalachia again as, um, you know, poor or backwards or, or white or whatever, um, that's not coincidental. Right? It's, not, it's not by chance that this is how this region is defined. Um, and so you have to ask questions like, whose benefit is this serving? Right? Um, who's getting paid? Who's getting paid because of this particular per perception of Appalachia? Right? Like, who's getting paid, again, because of this perception of Appalachia? Right? And, and so when we, when, we, um, when we tell the stories that we tell um, and we go de deep, right, it's to, to bring these things to the forefront so that we can think about them uh, collectively. Right? Um, and then there's power building, right? Which I think is more so where we, um, where we find strength and where we want to, you know, wh where we want to be. So in producing the podcast, like I said, it's one thing to say, you know, when you hear things about Appalachian, you're like, oh, well, black and white coal miners went into the coal, f went into coal mines together. But where were they living? You know, um, who was stuck on the side of a hill that was going to fall down when the rain falls too heavily, right? So... In, in that sense, that's one thing. But what are the stories of the communities, the, the black communities? They might be small, they might be few, whatever, but they're not insignificant, right? And they're amazing, amazing, amazing stories, right? Like just yesterday, um, you know, we were connecting to two small black coal towns in this region and just watching this connection was beautiful, right? For us just sitting and, and watching these people talk to each other about how similar their places is, uh, their places are, right? Like how powerful is that? How important is that? And it means so much for us, right? And to bring those stories to the airways so people can hear them near and far. Um, but then, like I said, the power building is, is, in, is in young black people hearing about themselves 
um, on this podcast. It's about, um, you know, watching something on our social media and being like, oh my God, that's my grandmother in that picture from 1940s, right? Um, so I think that, uh, you know, what does that do? Of course, it's nice to see representation of yourself, but what is, you know, what about the empowerment? What about the, uh, the community building? What about the ways that this now makes you, f- make you feel um, like, I can't challenge this shit. I can't, you know, go to these legislative meetings and, and push back. Um, I can't connect with somebody, you know, in a different town or a different city who, you know, who's, who, who has a similar story and we can push, we can change this whole thing, right? Um, and so, so, so that's important for us. It's also important that, like, you know, when we think about, again, um, what Appalachia is, that, that, you know, that, that we pull in from Knoxville and we pull in from Birmingham, we pull in from Pittsburgh because this is all Appalachia and the stories there, you know, are, are important, right? And are um, not only for how we, we how, not only for how we think about this region, but where, we, where the power to change it comes from, right? Um, so I'm all jumbled and I can go on, but I'm also going to stop <laughs> and let Chuck go. What is, what is power? What, are, what do you explore with Apodlacha and those power narratives in, in the region? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And, and first of all, thank you for having me on the panel. Um, I'm really honored to be here, especially among these two who are way more accomplished and impressive than I am, as you'll probably find out. But uh, so like with Apodlacha, I guess to give a little bit of background, we started at uh, my uh, co-host, John Eisner and I started it in 2019 because we we were kind of tired of of hearing one narrative about Appalachia, especially in politics. And I, I'm an expat. I live now in Northern Virginia. I used to live in Nashville. John still lives in Parkersburg. So we have this two sort of converging and diverging perspectives. And we were just sort of thinking, like, why are all these people, especially people who aren't from Appalachia, trying to tell the story of Appalachia and trying to tell us, like, how people in Appalachia think? And really what we were trying to do, we we aren't trying to say that this is how all Appalachians think. We just wanted another perspective. And so we started a podcast that was geared sort of towards around maybe debunking common stereotypes, but also being a more progressive voice in an atmosphere that's often dominated either by progressive voices from the coasts or by very like conservative voices from places in Appalachia. And so our, our hope with that was to really uh, be sort of a challenge to that because one of the things that we saw, I mean, I, I hate bringing up his name and I, I hope that I won't have to say it again, but uh, J.D. Vance, or uh, as I like to call him, John Dammit Vance, because that's, I want to think that that's how his mother would address him, being angry with him. Um, that's how my mom addressed me anyway. Uh, so with someone like him, that's, the, that's what a lot of people view Appalachia is, which is wrong, obviously, but he had a massive platform. And so we wanted to try to chip away at that. And and that's the hope with this. And what we've tried to do is not just reach Appalachians who are still in Appalachia and not just Appalachian expats, but people who aren't from the region that may want to like lend an ear and, and try to understand better or at least see a different perspective. That's really what we're trying to do with it. And, and we've tried to really build a platform around that. And it's not just for our voices, it's for highlighting other people's voices too who may not be well known outside of Appalachia. That's, that's the goal with it. And that's what we, we want to try to do to challenge that power dynamic. Because oftentimes, I think has been mentioned and alluded to here is that there's, there's power dynamics, especially in media, exist a lot of times outside of Appalachia. And it's people outside of Appalachia who are trying to tell 
the story of this region. And so we, we want to push back against that and change it. I want to talk a little bit about code switching. Um, at 100 days, and I've not been with the project since its inception in 2016, but I've been there since 2018. And my first experience with anybody writing about code switching was actually a teenager from Harlan, Kentucky, who wow. presented us with a commentary about um, how she'd experienced, she didn't have the word for it, but as she, I read her narrative, I was like, that's exactly what you're doing. That's exactly what you're experiencing. Um, and I think that comes into play probably with, with the entire region, with each of the communities that we are trying to serve and the communities we're trying to target. Chuck, can we start with your kind of personal experience with code switching as somebody who's spent a, some adult, some of their adult life outside of the region? I have to imagine that's been something you've recognized in yourself. Um, and then how does that shape discussions on the podcast as well? Yeah, thank you. That's a, it's a really good question. It's something that I didn't really understand until I left the region uh, and, and got into different environments where there weren't many West Virginians and many Appalachians, but it's something that I think oftentimes gets discussed with people's accents, but it also is discussed with just your vernacular that, that you use in, in common situations. I found myself like referring to my grandpa as grandpa and not papa when I was in like DC or when I was in Michigan or, 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 or Nashville because I, I was kind of self-censoring like, oh, these people, they won't take me seriously if I use that word. And I look back on that and I'm, I'm honestly like kind of ashamed of it. But I, one of the best examples I can pull from is actually an example of somebody else that we talked to, um, a young woman at, uh, in Kingsport, Tennessee, who uh, we did a, a, like a virtual talk to, I think it was the Kingsport Library, and this is after we had done an episode on Appalachian accents. We had collected over 110 different accents from all throughout the region and, and, and had a linguistics professor on to talk about it and, and talk about the, the important differences in accents and how they're, they're so beautiful and everything. And, and this woman talked to us and she said, you know, like that really meant a lot to me because I've suppressed my accent uh, a lot of my life and and hearing that and seeing that and seeing more people talk about how important, how beautiful they are, really gave me the confidence to embrace my accent. And I think that that's something that we see a lot. There's a lot of, when you talk about code switching, there's a lot of people who, uh, especially who leave the region like me or an expat, um, think and believe that they have to change their accent. And I don't blame them for that at all because there is so many, there's so much judgment around it. There's so much unfair judgment around Appalachian accents about how they're, it means you're uneducated or, or you're unsophisticated or you're not a serious person. And so we, we obviously, we never blame anybody for losing their accent because of that. Cause that's, you know, sometimes all you have to survive. But at the same time, one thing that we're really trying to do is showcase how important and how uniquely special and honestly like really cool Appalachian accents are and just Appalachian culture in general so that we hope that we can change the narrative not just among Appalachians about that but but further reach further beyond that because I think everybody in this room would would agree with me when you say like that the perception around Appalachians and especially around Appalachian accents is an unfair one when it comes to that and so that's something we've really tried to do I, I never viewed myself as being someone that had a really like thick accent or anything like that. Now people have told me that I've had one, but it wasn't something I ever felt the need to suppress, but I have felt the need to change the way that I talk around people when I was in like a quote unquote business setting or, or a professional setting. And looking back at that, like, I mean, I'm not gonna 
recount what I, I did, I mean, I, I, I guess I don't regret it because it was what I had to do at the time, but looking back on it, it shouldn't be like that. Um, and so that's part of, I think, what we've tried to focus on. We've discovered that it's not just my experience, not just a couple of people's experience, it's a lot of people's experience. And so telling those stories is really important. And Keshi, can we stick with code switching, but in, in a slightly different context? You and I, I did an Instagram Live <laughs> uh, about a year and a half ago, and, and we were talking about one of my favorite episodes of the podcast, where you, at some point, interview a tour guide on a plantation, okay. and, they, and they say something about, well, the land was negotiated <laughs> away from the Native Americans, <laughs> and we cut to you and Angela in the studio, and you're like, you mean it was stolen? Like... And, and you make this great point about how podcasting almost takes away the need to code switch. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So I think code switching, code switching in general is something that black folks have, you know, we've grown up hearing that if you want to get a job, if you want to be in certain spaces, you have to, you put on a white voice or you have to code switch or whatever way that somebody tell you you have to speak properly or speak correct English, right? Um, and in so many ways, like devaluing the ways that you learn to speak, the way that you're, you, you know, that you speak at home or with family or whatever. Um, and so for one, that is something that as, as I got older, especially once I got into a, a PhD program, I was like, forget all that other stuff. I'm, this is who I am. This is how I'm going to show up. This is how, I'm, you know, purposely I'm going to be in spaces that expect me to sound a certain way and I'm going to speak the way that I want to. Right. And so that's something that I have worked on for myself. Just like this is how I show up. Take me or leave me. Right. Um, and some days when I feel a little froggy, I might jump. Right. Um, but. I, I think that when it, when it came to the podcast, um, I remember when we went through podcast training. So we went through this, this training with all of these NPR stations. And you all know how NPR sounds, right? Um, <laughs> and so we're going through this training, and I'm like, I don't think I have one of those. I don't have an NPR voice. I don't know where it is. I can't find it, right? Um, and, you know, just, um, you know, talking with my colleagues and folks that just encouraged me to, like, again, don't, you don't have to get an NPR voice. You can just talk like you talk. And then I'm like, okay. And so that's part of why we decided to um, do our podcast in a chat cast start, style as opposed to a you know, narrative documentary style podcast, right? Um, and so when, we, when we're just having a conversation, I will talk to my friends the way that I will talk to them. And that's the feel that you get listening to our podcast. And so when this guy's talking about negotiating, we can say, nah, homie, that's thiefing. Right, like that—that's thievery. Like you're stealing, you stole shit. Like you know what I mean. Um, and we keep that—we keep that energy on the podcast because, again, when we think about who we're creating this podcast for, it's for young Black folks in this region, right? And and it's to value their their experiences, their their lives, the way they talk at home, how their grandma or papa or whomever. You know, I didn't grow up in this region. Um, but I want to show up as whatever black self I am, and I want them to show up as whatever black self. Um, and, 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 and podcasting, because there are not all these regulations that radio or TV has, you can do that, right? I mean, anybody technically can create a podcast if you have access to the internet and a microphone. You probably don't even need a microphone, a cell phone, right? Um, and so that, there's a low barrier of entry, um, and so you don't have all of those same regulations. And, and I do enjoy that about... Um, producing a podcast, you might hear some inappropriate language every now and then um, on the podcast, but I try to keep it, you know, we try not to do the most because we want teachers to use them. We want um, librarians to share them with kids. And so I try to keep it together, you know, for the most part. 
Yeah, Crystal, how does that translate to a digital space for you all? Is, is the thought process similar or, or different? I think, uh, you know, as Black by God is sort of like figuring itself out and what is the, the, the hardest thing is, well, the hardest and most telling thing is that I am really overwhelmed with a lot of uh, and I'm going to say this, and I know Keshi's going to read it in another way, the progressive white liberal feminist, right? Like, you know, like that means something to somebody, <laughs> and it means something to black folks who kind of understand the world around what I call sort of like well-meaning whiteness mm -hmm. that, that can't see itself. And here's an example. I get a lot of opinion pieces for Black by God, which I love because I'm finding people are finding a place that they can get their voice. They'll say, I sent this uh, op-ed into blankety-blank paper. They wouldn't publish it. You know what I mean? I'm like, this is great. Um, but I also am receiving a lot of opinion pieces that center whiteness. Uh, so when I read the story, it's about someone sort of like coming of like, you know, I grew up in a small town where there's no black people. And then all of a sudden I realized in 2020 that, you know what I mean? Like it's racism. I want to do something about it because I didn't, da, 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 you know, and it's on and on. I'm like, I'm thankful for the awakening, but this paper is to center black voices. And so it's a very different way to look into a space, right? So even in this Appalachian narrative, what I hear a lot of and have heard a lot of over the years, you know what I mean? Is like how as a black person or Latinx person or how I didn't fit, fit in or then I figured out that I was, you know, a part of this narrative. That's because the Appalachian narrative centers on whiteness. So what we have an opportunity to do is, right? How does, how does your Appalachianist come out of a, a black and Appalachia space, right? Or a black by God space? How can you find, as opposed to the other, which we're constantly doing. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like constantly in this space, it's like, I love saying that I'm six generations Appalachian, right? Because it's like, yo, I got my street cred, right? And, you know, that's, that's as, I'm Appalachian as far back on black side and white side, right? As, as, as anybody can tell me. So, you know, that sort of talks back, it's, it's subversive to that, like, you know, what is that white Appalachian narrative? And I think that's where we center everything from and we have to change that. And that's, you know, what I think code switching in any space, we know how to do that. And when the, when I get the op-ed from the white person that has figured that out, whoo, Lord, you know, it's like, so, you know, um, I'll just stop. I want to add, though, that like it does require like a level of bravery, right? Like you do have to make this decision that I'm going to do this thing because you're, like you said, like it, it, oftentimes you're rewarded for, for switching, right? Or even to call out this negotiation, right? You've got you to gotta make a decision to be brave and you think about who you're responsible for or, or who's listening and why is it important for them to get the truth or to get the realness the way that you present it, you know? And I think that that is enough, like that... Like, you know, it might take some reflecting and some wrestling with yourself, but when you get to that place, it's freeing. It's like, I don't care, you know? Yeah. Krista, I want to go back to this unpublished essay that I quoted off the top. Um, because there's, there's a point that you're trying to make that I think is really valuable for this conversation. And honestly, I've never seen anybody frame it in this way before in the region, um, where you talk about diversity, quote unquote, diversity seekers in media, and you almost explain, explain them like parachute journalists. 
And I was wondering if you could explore that concept a little bit. Yeah, I think, you know, back to sort of Pastor Watts saying, like, when the white journalists get it wrong, it's all that we have. And, you know, I look at Black by God and try to say, look at it as a way of looking out from a community as opposed to people looking in. When you are journalists or you're a storyteller, you're a folklorist or whatever, you pop into a community, right? And you're like, whoo, boy, this water is dirty and all this other stuff. And these people need, you're, you're helpful in the sense of that you're sharing the story, but you get to leave, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, trying to curate, develop media makers, storytellers, and we have so many mediums now. We got Snapchat, we got Instagram. Everybody's a storyteller. You know, how do we, you know, encourage that so that, you know, we're, we're, we're hearing authentic stories that are not driven by code switching, you know, um, in order to be palatable to other people. You know what I mean? It's sort of like, no, you figure out, <laughs> you figure out how to hear through the accent that is uncomfortable to you, right? So, you know, I think I forgot the question, Ashton. <laughs> How are diversity seekers in media like oh, parachute seekers. journalists? Yeah, diversity seekers. I don't know. You know, I was thinking about this today because it was sort of like, you know, um, I think I saw where uh, West Virginia Attorney General gave an award to um, uh, uh, Delegate Caleb Hanna, who is a uh, black lawmaker. He's also a Republican and, um, you know, voted for all the CRT, anti-CRT bills and all these things. And I think sometimes, you know, we look at diversity um, in terms of like, you know, counting color in the room, right? Instead of sort of counting mental complexion in the room, you know? So of course, you know, our, uh, uh, it was an attorney, a secretary of state would, you know, reward uh, a, a black Republican um, in a space um, because they idealistically think the same, right? So I don't, necessarily, I think diversity gets very mudded down in sort of like, you know, visual context, right? Instead of like looking at sort of the the mental diversity or, you know, the the diversity within a room. And, you know, I think I've heard from some students and, you know, some of the panels I've been in, you know, it's a, we, we are in such a binary in everything, right? It's either or, you know what I mean? It's black, it's white, it's Republican, it's Democrat. And I don't think it's helping us. You know what I mean? Like it's, there's, a, there's a spectrum on there of diversity. And I think that's what's really important. And that's what I try to think about as I'm starting to shape like a Black by God advisory board, as I'm looking at content. We know who we are, right? Like Black by God is certainly um, what they might call mission or, um, or um, movement journalism. You know what I mean? Like we, we have a cause and from that we center around. But even in creating that, I don't want everybody that thinks like me or agrees with me on every single point, you know, because that is so boring. Um, but it also doesn't help move the needle. And I think that diversity should be, you know, a, a way of looking at who and how you're making decisions. Um, in, in your company, in your business, and I think the easiest way to do this, and everybody can do it in here, is diversify your timelines, right? Really take a minute to curate your timelines, whether that's Twitter, Facebook, whatever, you know, so that you are not in an echo chamber of people that think like you, right? That doesn't mean you go follow a bunch of, but maybe it does, you know what I mean? Follow other publications, and so I think Diversity in media is going to be dependent on consumers being able to say, you know what, I think I need like to, to have a bigger perspective of what's 
of what's going on in the world. And maybe like a Black by God partnered with something like international. You know what I mean? Like I really think that, you know, diversity starts with the reader and the consumer. And that's something that I, I can control for myself and you can control for you. And from that, I think a, a value will be seen. You know, we all are living in these really awful algorithms and echo chambers um, that are sort of fed to us. And so, but that we do have power and control to, to, to change that and to navigate that. I think I answered the question. I think age is also part of the equation. I mean, we've, part of 100 days as we've transitioned, as we've grown and changed over the years, part of what we've come to is investing in young people and investing in young voices. And I know that that's important for everyone on this stage. Um, but for, uh, for me personally, as an editor, when I get a piece written by a 16-year-old or a 17-year-old, and it is so much more mature in thought than I could have ever been at that age, it just blows me away. Um, and we've alluded to this and we've talked about it a little bit, but can we talk a little bit about age for each of our platforms and how we're trying to reflect this kind of identity narrative in Appalachia or exploring of identity to a younger generation or what we, I don't know, are millennials still young? Do I get to still be a young Elder millennial. <laughs> Should I get to still say that? <laughs> so Chuck, do you want to start with Appalachia? What are you, how are you thinking about age in terms of your focus and the conversations that you're having on the podcast? Yeah, that's a, that's, it's, it's an interesting question. I, I think we're trying to think in terms of how to show that it's okay to embrace your Appalachian identity. And I think I can draw from personal experience. When I was younger, when I was in high school, junior high, high school, going into college, I shamefully rejected my identity. I didn't really even identify as an Appalachian or West Virginia. I had a very, it was it was very strange for me. Like I, I didn't have a lot of cultural identity to either that. And I mean, I, I had a Syrian grandpa, but I, I have no cultural identity to that either. So it was kind of like it, it was very hard for me to really understand uh, my identity with that. But I knew, and I was well, I was told a lot by people like, "You got to get out. You have to get out." Which, in retrospect, is kind of a terrible uh, 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 framing, I guess, to have it just be that and siloed for me. But that's how I grew up. So I kind of grew up resenting where I was from, and, and I'm ashamed of that. I really am. And it's something I've kind of had to grapple with. Um, but if I had had you know, other media platforms or other, like, mediums showing, like, that it's okay and it's actually, like, a good thing to embrace your Appalachian identity and where you're from and it, it, you're special and it's, and it's something that's important about you rather than just kind of, like, having this reinforced idea that I need to get out and seek something better. I think that would have been really important and transformative for me growing up. And now... I'm grateful that like I've had the life experiences I've had. It's very privileged to have that. There's lots of people who can't leave that may want to. Um, but I, I look at it as like, I really want people, especially younger people who are listening, to understand that you shouldn't have to feel like you need to reject where you're from based on like the politics of that state or just what other people are telling you or this national media narrative that Appalachia is this backwards place full of 
racist assholes and it's nothing else. Sorry, I'm, I should censor myself. It's for a podcast, um, it's okay. Uh, <laughs> if you talk to John, I have a lot of uh, self-censoring. It's a problem for me. Um, and so I, I really want to kind of communicate that. That's one of the goals that we've set out for this is showing that it's okay, it's cool to be an Appalachian. Like, it's not something that you should reject and it's something that, it's part of your identity so you get to define that how you want rather than letting other people define it. And I think that's the biggest thing because for me, and again, I... I am not sugarcoating this. I am very ashamed of how like my like how I grew up thinking that. And it's because almost like somebody else defined that for me and I accepted that and stuck with it. And it wasn't until leaving and moving up to Michigan for law school that like I started to realize not being around anybody from West Virginia, not a single person in my 900 person school was from West Virginia. And realizing like, wow, okay, this is different. This is special. This makes me unique for some reason. Uh, and I never looked at it as that before. And so I, I went through a lot of like mental, like, you know, leaps of like, wow, okay, this is very strange. Like I rejected this my whole life, but it really taught me like that it's more important to kind of understand and have a more nuanced view of where you're from and your identity. And so kind of circling back to your question, what we hope to do, especially with younger people, but also older, older folks as well, or anybody of any age, is to show that you should embrace that, not reject it. Um, and, and that identity is complicated. Like, I know it's not, it, it, I always say this, Twitter is a place where nuance goes to die. I think that a lot of things um, in our world, or I, I think um, uh, like Crystal mentioned, or, or was it Dr. Alameen, I can't remember who it was, but mentioned that there, we often think in binary terms. And so we, we try to push people not to do that and not to think like that and understand that identity is complicated, but it's something that, that it's okay to embrace. Yeah, and Keshi, you've mentioned a few times that you're making this podcast for those young black Appalachians that don't get their history or don't hear their story anywhere else. Can you talk about that a little bit more and how it's shaped what you all have become over the past two years? Yeah, so definitely, I think black people in general in, in this region, um, you know, have this weird relationship to Appalachian. Most times you don't meet black folks who are happily, proudly, I'm Appalachian, right? Um, folks, in my experience, folks connect to their place. You know, I'm from so-and-so place. And not even necessarily to the city, especially in Knoxville, they connect to their neighborhood, right? So there's a strong place relationship there. But um, when it comes to this region in general, they've been told for so long that, that they don't belong here, right? This is not their place. Um, and so I think that that is one thing that we, we recognize very early on. You'll find people as they get older, they, they're starting to grapple with it, Right? Um, and so when we, the cool thing about the Black and Appalachian podcast and the, the training that we went through is that we took a lot of time to think about who we were making our podcast for, right? Um, and so it is very person-centered and, it, and it's, it helps us a lot in our decision-making, in our design of the podcast. And we know, I can tell you exactly who this podcast is made for. It's, it's one person, Micaiah Davis, right? So when we think about who the Black and Appalachian podcast is, it's for him, right? And so when we're at a crossroads and not sure, should we do this or should we do this? Or how we think, what would Micaiah prefer, right? What would he want to hear or to see or, you know, and so that helps us. Micaiah is, you know, in his 20s. He's a young black guy who's an activist in his neighborhood. I can tell you all kinds of things about him because we, we interviewed him and we, we know him well, right? Um, and so, so that's, that's key, right? So that chat cast that I mentioned about and not code switching and um, showing up as black as you want to be on our, on our podcast, like that is all intentional. Um, it's intentional that we keep a light 
even when we're talking about very serious things, we try to keep a light tone. We try to be, make sure that it's, it's inviting or um, accessible to a 20-something-year-old or an 18-year-old that, that someone in high school or college can listen to it and, and can get it, but also can connect with us, right? Um, and so, remind me a question one more time before I go in the other Just how does, how does that focus <laughs> on young people as being your audience? How does, how does that inform your decision making? For sure. So, yeah. so, so even thinking about the decision to create a TikTok, right? <laughs> I'm making sure that, um, and it's a, weird, a really crazy thing is that we're seeing it, right? Like we're seeing the changes already. Um, and I'm not all over the region, not all the time, but like in Knoxville, I can see it. When I hang out at the bottom and folks are coming in and they're like, you know, black people are talking about Appalachia and kind of talking about themselves in relation to Appalachia. And it's like, oh, it's a shift happening. This is exciting, right? Um, even like thinking about what's happening on social media is really important for this, right? Um, you mentioned about Appalachia being cool. Like you see it in the TikToks. You see it in the reels. People are getting, are, are showing their pride, right? Um, West Virginia, y'all are off the chain with this pride thing. Like West Virginians are some of the proudest people I've met so far. Like it's crazy. It's yeah. cool. But like I love it. You know, it's like, um, you see the, they might be corny or whatever, but like William will send me West Virginia TikToks. <laughs> and, and you know, and you got these, these young folks, people in their, their, you know, late teens and early 20s who are proud of their whatever. I don't know. This is the kind of boots you wear for whatever, right? Like whatever it their is that they're making. Rolls. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and so that's exciting to me to see folks. Um, not cling to negative stereotypes of the region or, or just be, you know, just cling to the region and say, like, this is home, we're proud of it. Um, and you see the, the infusion of the different narratives of Appalachia, right? And, and because of podcasts like yours and, and your work and our work, I think we're helping to ushering some of that. And so it makes me feel good. Um, and, and as we think about, you know, the space, the Appalachia that we're creating um, for them, it's, you know, so it's where do we take them from here? Where, where, how do we make sure that there are opportunities in the region that they can stay home, right? So that the, the, the thing is not to get out as soon as you can, right? Um, so yeah, I'll stop. Crystal, when we had our initial kind of organizing conversation for this, you said, if I could hand this paper over to a 19 year old to be the publisher, I would do it in a heartbeat. Yep, anybody? <laughs> <laughs> Why is that important to you? Well, you know, I, when I was 16 years old, I tried to buy the last black newspaper in West Virginia. It was called the Beacon Digest. I was 16. I'm not sure how I thought I was even going to pay for it. But I asked my dad if he would, you know, go talk to uh, Mr. Starks to see if I could buy the newspaper. And he came back. Uh, my dad said, no, baby girl, they're not going to sell you the paper, but you can sell ads for them. And I was like, heck no. You know what I mean? Like, no, I, I want to, anyway, so, so that gumption uh, a 16-year-old me had that knew that I wanted to be in journalism, knew I wanted to be the boss, you know what I mean, that I could do it. And I really thought at 16 that I could do a better job. Um, I looked at the paper. I was on my yearbook staff. I was on my newspaper staff. I knew how to cut and paste because y'all don't know nothing about that, <laughs> right? And I, I knew looking at that paper that there were stories I wanted to tell. And the one story that I wanted to tell, and I didn't think, you know, it was, I lived to grow up in St. Albans, West Virginia. You'd have to go down the highway. On the side of the highway, there was always like some little road stop stand. And there was a man that would sell these like black mammy dolls, right? And I was furious about this. Why is this happening? How is this allowed? I had sort of like no teaching, nothing. I remember taking, going to the store to buy a film for like a little 
camera and then having to send it off and get, you know, and I, I still have those photos. I still need to write that story. But, you know, I believe in young people. I believe in their capacity and especially in today's day and age with technology and TikTok that they, they have the resources. I also believe that as, as you know, uh, whatever, uh, I try to be age fluid, but whatever generation I am, right? <laughs> that we, you know, we put a lot on young people in terms of like, oh, you're going to save the world for us. We're screwing it up, but you got it. The kids are all right. You know, and we have to like not really expect young people to do everything, but to give them the opportunities. And I know I've watched Ashton in her career also be a young person, you know, with the microphone and, and sort of, you know, some of the challenges that she said in perception and being a woman and a young woman, you know what I mean? Like, and, and I'm not with that. I believe that we can work and coexist together in media making spaces and all spaces. And I say that because, you know, with Black by God, you will always, I hope, see a cover that gives you joy and young inspiration, right? I don't care if the inside is like, you know, well, just open it up and you'll see. But, you know, that's important to me. But I'll equally say that, you know, a couple of weeks ago at 1130, my phone is blown up with senior citizens that don't know each other texting me to tell me about the stories that Black by God needs to write. Do you know about so-and-so? And this is so-and-so? And this is so-and-so? And I think one of the most beautiful things about being Appalachian is our intergenerationals, right? And I think that that's one way... Yeah, go ahead, because, you know, this is one way that we can look at everything that we're doing, like the bottom, you know what I mean? Like, are we being intergenerational? Do we have young people? Do we have seniors people? Do we have all the people in between, right? And are we thinking about that baby in the belly, and we are thinking about that person that's in hospice that's not going to be with us, and is their story safe, you know, so I think, you know, that's the way I'm looking at media making. And I think the way that that's done is when you, you know, you let young people lead, but you just don't push them out there to just like, oh, you figure it out. Because I know what that's like. I'm 47 now and I'm figuring out what I couldn't figure out at 16. Right. So I want to make sure that we have time for audience questions. And I'm going to give this as like a warning if you're interested in asking a question. The front row is empty if you want to come sit up here and I'll bring the microphone down. Um, I want to ask one, one more question while hopefully people are coming forward. Some of you are my students and I will call you out. Um, be prepared. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, you know, I think when we talk about young people, pushing young people into spaces to lead, all of that feels great but we're still media publications that have to pay the people who create media for us. And that focus on a younger audience, on a younger generation, they don't have the disposable income to pay our bills, right? To be a member of our public media station, maybe to get a subscription or to join our Patreon account, right? How are you all balancing the need to be able to financially support the work that you're doing, and this is for anybody, the need to fi financially support that work while also keeping that focus on the next generation. Well, I thought of an idea last night, and Keshia, what do you think about this? I was so, thinking so that I could do some Black by God bonnets, okay. right? You know? Yeah, that's right. Like, just some bonnets and, you know, put the logo on there. You know, bonnets are universal. They're so, yeah! 
Yeah, there's also, you know, it goes for men, it goes for women. There's also sort of like a, you know, in West Virginia, sort of like the way that we do the census data is like, you know, a lot of white families that have mixed children just check the white box, right? And so, you know, there needs to sort of be a campaign, wear your bonnet. Mm. But anyway, I'm saying that because, you know, Black by God is just trying to figure it out. And I know that a piece of the way I'm doing this has got to be like nonprofit because this publication has to be free. I'm not going to ask folks right. that are making, you know, uh, whatever the average salary is for the black family, 30000 something like that, you know, um, to pay for this. And um, so there's a piece of the way I'm looking at Black by God is, you know, how can we get grants, right? Then also the business side of it, you know, um, because there are from this university to, uh, you know, the phone company, people that, you know, they quote unquote have their diversity dollars and that they need to spend it or they need to reach or they might have a product that, that they want, you know, the black community to be aware of. So there's that ad revenue, but then there's also sort of like, you know, how many t-shirts can I sell? How many bonnets can I sell? Can I create a membership platform, right? Can I create different entries into the publication? Um, and, you know, one of the things, back to kind of like what Chuck was saying, like, like how, how we are unique and special. Um, I'm pretty fearless when it comes to like talking about West Virginia and Black by God. and I don't care because it's important. You know what I mean? And so I am working hard to, to do like the quote unquote pitch thing. You know what I mean? So that I can really start to talk about why this is important, why this matters now, why media matters now. And this average startup cost for any newsroom is $300,000. When I tell people that in my community, they're like, ha ha, like my little, my, little, my little team. You know what I mean? They kind of laugh at me, but I'm like, no, that's what it costs. That's what it costs to start a newsroom. And that's what I believe that Black by God should be. And $300,000 is a big number, but it's not a big number. It's kind of like when you leave West Virginia and you figure out that middle-class West Virginia is not middle-class America, right? I mean, it's very different scale. Like, I'm just, you know, on this, on this thing. So, you know, I want the publication to um, always be free and accessible to black communities and, and, and to, to Appalachian communities. But I think that there's different products and different layers. And it's just going to take a lot of creativity. Um, and the greatest need is really just like creating that runway space to develop something. Because not only am I an Appalachian business where, you know, entrepreneurship is just booming, but also... Um, I'm a black woman in America, and if you look at those, those, those startups and the success of any business started, you know, it's, it's I mean, every odd is, is, is stacked against Black by God being a sustainable publication, but I believe it can, and I believe that it can be the start of something that might take many different shapes and roots, but, you know, we'll will continue to exist. And I say that because I've been in the archives of this university looking at the old black papers, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the things, oh, I cannot remember the editor's name. It's in, the, but, but what he said, and this was a paper in the early 1900s, was that, you know, this paper may cease to exist from time to time. Mm -hmm. You may not see it, but we have not gone away. We just ran out of money, pretty much. And he said, and we'll be back. But also remembering that this, even if this publication goes away, something else at some time will emerge. And Black by God in 2022 is that emergence. And you know what? If we go away, something else will come back. I like that. I like that a lot. Um, I think that 
we've been pretty fortunate with the podcast because we got this grant from PRX. Um, so we've got about three years covered. But after those three years, we're going we're gonna to need your money. <laughs> we really are going to need your money. Um, but I think that, um, you know, like we're, we're a community, right? And so even if young folks don't have the disposable income, somebody got it, right? They're, they're professors, their their relatives, you know, we got there's folks around, there's organizations around, there's public media that can put some money into these projects, right? So I think that we can't expect it to, you know, you know, we can't expect it to just be on them. Um, and I think that there's tons of grant money. There's foundations, you know, all over funding all kinds of things. Um, and I think we need more money. We need more money for our our these projects. We need uh, money to do other projects, you know, we need to be paying the young people so that they can participate and, and, and do work and all of the things. We just need money. And there's people who got it, so. Uh, I think there's a lot of people that are familiar with financial gatekeeping, and it, it's a problem I think that everybody's encountered at one point or another. That's why podcasts are great, because they are free. And I think it's really important, at least for us, that the the content, the majority of the content that we produce always be free because we don't want to be preventing anybody from listening to it just because like they don't have money to kick into it. Uh, and you know, I've, I'm very fortunate in that I work from home and so I can balance my time with my day job with doing stuff for the podcast and not have to like really try to figure out how to make that work. And so that's been one thing that's really, I think, helped us because I do all the production and a lot of other aspects of it. And so we do have like a Patreon that, that we have people donate to every month and they get certain benefits from it. It's been really helpful for us to be able to upgrade our equipment because we started from nothing. Like this was, I mean, we started from literally nothing and we're self-financing uh, the operation and, and to some extent still are. Um, and so that has been helpful to be able to upgrade the equipment that we use to have better quality and um, just to be able to to produce the most high quality show that we can. But I think that for us, it's it's a nice thing to be able to have in order to do that. But we always want to emphasize that that our platform is going to be free, and because we're a podcast and we run a very lean operation, it doesn't cost a lot for us to do it. Now it is helpful just because I like we have certain things we put money into every month, but it's the beauty of something like this is that in this realm of, I guess, quote unquote new media, it's way more accessible for people. Um, you know, and I think with the advent of the internet, it makes it so you can receive content in so many different ways that it is free of charge. And so that's something that's been really important to us because John and I both grew up like not well off at all. John grew up extremely poor. I grew up with my parents pinching pennies as much as we could, um, and and it was tough. And we understand um, the limitations of that, where every dollar matters in your budget. And so we never want to force people to have to put money into anything to listen to to us be loudmouths every month, every week. So um, it's a, it's important, and you know, like money certainly helps us, but we're we're able to run things pretty lean, and I really like that about it because that's truly like one of the most important things. The other thing I'll say on that too that's been helpful for us is that we've formed personal relationships with Appalachian businesses that have helped us by doing sponsorships so that when like people who do have the extra income to be able to order something from one of our sponsors that has helped us a little bit too and that's been really cool to kind of help local businesses out but again like it all of our base stuff will always be free We're, that's never going to change 
As I move down to go take some of these audience questions, Chuck, can you tell us, did Sarah Jessica Parker really have the tote bag? She did. Uh, Sarah Jessica Parker is a really, really nice, awesome person. She's from Nelsonville, Ohio, part of Appalachia. Um, in fact, we actually, <laughs> yeah, right. we, uh, we DM'd with her a, a little bit. Uh, John, to his credit, uh, I don't want to say slid into her DMs because that sounds derogatory, <laughs> but... Um, but uh, it was funny. We noticed, like, she liked a couple of our pictures, like, a couple months ago. And I was like, that's strange. And, and we saw that she was from Nelsonville. I was like, oh, that's cool. And then we saw that picture come out because she was filming the, the new update of um, Sex and the City. And we're like, wow, that was from a merch store. That's really wild. Nice. And, um, yeah, she's from Nelsonville, Ohio. Uh, I think listens to the show. Um, I think her mom was a teacher. And so she really connected with, like, a lot of the education issues we talked about. And she's just a really nice person. And so it was really cool to see the reach of that. I was genuinely shocked really cool okay so remember this is thank you for participating but also this is being recorded for these podcasts so um if i can ask you to introduce yourself and then let them know where you're from and then ask your question uh hi there my name is rachel johnson um i'm currently a senior at wvu studying public relations and originally from mercer county so down southern west virginia Uh, So growing up, a lot of the media about where I was from was not the most positive. Things like Buck Wild, Wrong Turn, and the episode of Criminal Minds where they go to Wheeling and the killer is like an incestuous cannibal. Um, But now there are podcasts and there is 100 Days and there is Black by God and new media. Um, So I'm about to graduate And now I have this fancy media degree and a lot of passion for where I'm from and a whole lot of spite. Uh, (laughs) Like most Appalachian young people. Um, What do we do with it? What do do Appalachian young people do with this passion and this spite? And like I said, my college degree that I'm very proud of. Well, I'm going to say something that's, you know, we always hear sort of the struggle to stay and we want our people to, uh, you know, we, we don't want them to feel like they have to leave. And a lot of that to me is sort of like, in a sense, it's also just another layer of like this Appalachian fatalism, right? Like there's no other productive place, right? Like a thriving LA economy, someplace, you know, blah, 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 where they say, no, young people stay here, right? Like, like, I don't quite get, you know, we have a fear. I think the fear is that if people leave, they may not have the means to come back or they may not want to come back. But I believe there's a young person, right, with a lot of Appalachian angst, right? Do what you want. Don't, don't be limited by should I stay or should I go or what should... Do what you want, right? Do what you think is going to, like, encourage you and help you build the narrative that you want. I would also encourage you to go back and look at those shows, right, with um, a different lens, right? Because one of the most amazing stories that I love about Buck Wild is Kara Parrish. Like, if you don't know, yeah, yeah, Kara Parrish is, she was on Buck Wild, and she took her five minutes of fame and flipped it into a, really amazing career and she will give you and maybe that's even something that you could think about doing for is is interviewing Kara about a reflect on you know Buck Buck Wild because imagine being a teenager and have the governor of the of, of, of West Virginia say that you are horrible I forget what he said he called her Joe Manchin who's now our senator y'all know him um he said some awful things about Kara Parrish when she was a teenager on an MTV show. You know what I mean? Like, and how that made her feel, you know, to be degraded. So, I mean, really the advice is 
don't don't live don't live your life by any of these parameters of like, oh, I have to stay in Appalachia. I have to, you know, go to be something special. Just follow your heart, right? And because that's the truth. That's, that's the truth. And anyone that asks a question gets a free paper. How about that? Aww. Yeah. Y'all want to Hi, I'm Melissa Helton uh, in Leslie County, Kentucky. We talked about um, money and a little bit about urbanity and rurality and um, age. I would like to know in what other ways your work kind of focuses on or centers intersectionality like race and gender and orientation and religion or disability. So I think... um when it comes to black and Appalachia, like I said earlier, we want people to show up as whatever black selves they are, right? Um, and so that's where, however your identities intersect. Um, and so I think, especially for us, I mean, we focus on black stories, but we, we're, we're across the spectrum, any spectrum, right? So we're telling black queer stories or black women's stories or um, you know, religious stories, it's just about whatever, right? Um, we just wanna get them out there. Right. And, and, and again, um, you know, some t somewhere along the line, um, uh, oh, Jesus, Karita Brown was talking about somebody asked her about how does she define Appalachian? She said, which Appalachia? Right. There's so many different Appalachians. And, and we kind of break that down and said there's so many different black Appalachians, too. Right. So however you show up as a black person in this region, you have like we value your story. We value your experience. I would just uh, add to that too. Um, for us, uh, we acknowledge that we're cis white men and so we don't have a lot really to add to um, the conversation with respect to that. But what we try to do is we reach a lot of people and so we wanna make sure that all the stories about Appalachia are reaching people that, that listen to us. And so, you know, being outside the region for, for several years, you begin to kind of understand what the narrative is, the day-to-day -day narrative is about Appalachian, especially about West Virginia, where people don't think that queer people exist there. People don't think that black people exist there. And it's this, it's bizarre to me. Like I, I just, I, I, even just like, use your brain, I mean, just mathematically, like the, it's gonna happen, but um, it's this, it's again, this binary type of thinking. And so our, our method is to be able to highlight those stories. I mean, a perfect example, uh, Nima Avashia in her, her new book, Another Appalachia, where she talks about being queer and Indian in West Virginia. And that's a story that's not, not known by a lot of people. And so what we wanna do is try to like lift those voices up. Um, that's, you know, like our podcast is a lot of things. We talk about politics, we talk about culture, we talk about um, witchcraft pretty soon. We're working on something with that. But, um, but what we wanna try to do is show people that like, yes, we are two cis white men, but that is not everything that Appalachia is about, even though a lot of people think that it's just that. And so those stories are ones that we wanna make sure that we're doing our part with the platform that we created to be able to help highlight so other people realize that and we can challenge that dynamic of these binary thinkings about, oh, it's, it's a red state, so everybody is a Republican, or oh, it's all, you know, all these white stories, nothing else. So that's, that's what we try to do with it. Yeah. And, and sometimes the story is not even about the identity. It's a, just, just whatever that this person who happens to identify in this particular way or have these intersecting identities, there's something, there might be something else that's interesting about them that they want to share or that we are, you know, that we're trying to highlight or give them a voice. Um, so, you know, I think that we try to do it in a way that's um, 
meaningful to, to, to people um, who are listening as well as who are sharing as well. Chuck, I want to talk to you after this about an episode about masculinity in Appalachia, because I think that's a conversation that needs to be had. That is, that definitely is, and I am probably one of the least masculine, I guess, for this white man. I don't know. I, that'll be an interesting, actually, we've talked about and sort of toyed around with that idea, because there is a lot of toxic masculinity, and, and it's kind of a problem because it, it ingrains, especially being like, like a man from Appalachia, it's ingrained in your brain a certain way of acting and thinking, and if you diverge from that, you're not considered a quote-unquote man. But anyway, we can talk about that offline. Um, hello, my name's Jason. I grew up down in Bluefield. Um, I lived in Brooklyn for the last 11 years, and then uh, the pandemic moved up into the Hudson Valley, so I'm also an expat. And my question is, uh, it's in my brain clear, but it might not be clear when it comes out, so we'll see. Um, it's kind of about um, the code switching and um, protecting the Appalachian diaspora and kind of like strengthening Appalachian identity. And, and you heard, I hear the story about Sarah Jessica Parker. It's like, you know, you and myself had this experience where we leave, and then we're like, wait, that makes me really special and really unique, and I'm gonna actually celebrate that even though I don't live there anymore. But many don't have that experience. You know, they leave and they don't look back. Um, and I feel like a lot of what we hear in terms of Appalachian media are people who are here and celebrating the voices, which is incredible, and I'm curious about any efforts to connect with people say like a Sarah Jessica Parker who has Appalachian roots to get them to celebrate their Appalachian identity and use their voice on more widespread media to have that diverse representation. You know, it's, it's, it's easy to dismiss an Appalachian show, but an Appalachian character on a show, um, something like that. I don't know if there were any efforts like that. That's a great question. Um, well, first of all, we'd love to have Sarah Jessica Parker on our show. We're trying to make it happen. Um, but I think, to your broader point, that's something that, you know, if we had to say, we, like, at least for us, for Apod Latch, a long-term goal is to try to try to force that to happen. Um, and I don't know that we have the power to necessarily do that. But uh, it, it, it would be nice to be able to see that ownership on a broader scale, especially from someone like her or, or, um, or like a Jennifer Gardner, for example, um, to where you have people that have these massive platforms that, that are very well known that are from the region, they're from West Virginia, they're from parts of Appalachia and can be challenging that. That's something that, it's something we wanna explore more and figure out how it is, like what, what can we do to utilize what platform and, and influence, if you can even call it that, that we have to make that happen because I do think that's really important. I think part of it is telling the stories of just the average person though too and showing that, you know, it's complex, it's not like being from Appalachia is not one thing or the other, it's very complex, but telling those stories and showing that that's a really unique experience and one that we can be all collectively challenging the, um, the perception of it would be, I think that's where we're starting, but we really would love to have uh, someone like SJP on our show to, to really be able to, to kind of take a massive megaphone to that so that it, it forces a lot of people to challenge it. I think that that might be an area for us to collaborate. Oh, heck yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, there's a paper that, or talk that um, uh, Crank X Walker does, and he's like calling out all of these black folks that have um, Appalachian roots. And I've been playing around with that as a, um, just pulling some of those names and other names that we know um, for like a segment on the podcast. So that's something that I've been thinking about for a while and hoping that somebody will hear their name and, and reach out. <laughs> 
Um, but I've also been slid and put some money on it, right? <laughs> um, but I've also been, um, I've slid into a DM or two um, in the past, including, um, what's her name? Tracy, uh, who? Mm-mm. Tracy, Diana Ross's daughter. Tracy Ellis Ross, because Diana's, Diana Ross's dad is from East Tennessee. And I'm like, girl, you got Appalachian roots. Let's connect. But nothing happened. Well, you know, Nkeshi, that's how I, people ask me often, how do you survive West Virginia? And I survive West Virginia by, pre- no, by, by pretending, <laughs> this is the truth, I've got a tweet to prove it. I pretend that I'm Tracy Ellis Ross's Appalachian cousin, oh. and that you know, like we'll connect us. That's right. Like I mean, I pretend, but I pretend, <laughs> and then it's like the hope that, like you know, like I'll get to go to summer to her house, yes. or like she'll come visit or something, because you know, okay. Well, we, please, let's and, do this and, thing. you know, there's yeah, yes, let's do I've this. I've also thing. had dreams about like she um, has a platform off of her pattern beauty for journalism. It's hidden in the website, oh. and I think we can, I think we can figure this out. But okay, you know, I always say what do all famous black West Virginians have in common? They left. And I think that that piece, you right, like the diaspora, um, I can just tell you from like the folks that are actually sending in contributions to Black by God, that they are really important. And sometimes I think we poo-poo on the people that leave that aren't embracing their apps. They got a job. They got kids. They started a life. This is our thing. It's okay. You know what I mean? It's like, but I think that there's ways finding for the expats to tap in or to support. Because one of the things that I've also heard is that they're quite often exhausted with um, the political climate. You know what I mean? So, yeah, yeah, I've got the last abortion clinic in West Virginia. Oh, they need money. This, this, all that. They're kind of, you know, what I'm hearing from a very small sort of like focus group that I've been, you know, kind of listening to and over the years that, you know, the, these publications are really, and these platforms are important because they allow the story, right? It's not always about the cause. It's not always about the, the earth is, you know, we're about to fall off the cliff, blah, blah, blah. It's the story, right? And I think that this is why, you know, our platforms and other platforms are important to connect with the expatriates so that they f- still feel a connection to their roots, right? Or find themselves, right? But it's not all about like, not everybody's going to be like rah, rah, you know I mean? Like Appalachian. I think that's true with, we're a big family, right? There's always somebody that's putting the family reunion together, right? And there's always somebody that's showing up late, right? And there's always somebody like, we're, we're just a big, you know, community. And here's the thing. We're just a community like any other community anywhere else in the world, right? Like, we're special because we are special, and they're special because they're special, right? And I just happen to be absolutely in love with our specialness, right? (laughs) But also recognize, like, the only way, you know, to bring, you know, those expats or people that may have distanced themselves from this identity or exploring it, right, is we have to shift our narrative, which we all heard today if you were in Ann Pancake's seminar with these lovely students, right? We really do have to center more on joy, more on hope, right? We have to center more on this. We can't always be running into the fire, and I think that's so much of our narrative. And to speak to the idea of, like, how do we bring Appalachian stories into a mainstream cultural sort of narrative, I am just like, you know, I I am hoping, praying, writing, doing everything possible because after drowning in like a political narrative, I quickly, not quickly, but 10 years maybe, to realize that, you know, the way that you shift culture, the way that you shift change is through culture, right? Politics is its whole game. But we get one black Appalachian character 
on the next grownish or the next blackish, boom, game changer, right? Let's do it, girl. The Let's conscious, do it. yeah, the consciousness will change, right? And so often when people hear my accent, <laughs> they say, where are you from, Tennessee? You know what I mean? Like they name every place but West Virginia. And in so many ways, we have an absolute canvas to create what we want, you know, instead of fighting like that we're forgotten. Oh, we got a blank canvas. We can make it what we want. And that to me is the Appalachian future. Right. And that's what that's what this space is. As much as we're looking back, we have to really look, you know, like seven generations down in what, you know, my great, great, great grandkids. I hope when they do whatever time machine they do and they find me in my tweets, they'll be like, you know, my granny was pretty cool. (laughs) So I don't want to be the reason that people don't get to eat lunch. So this is going to be our final question. No pressure. All right. Okay. um, My name is Shalem. Uh, I like to say I'm from I-64, so Beckley, Charleston, and Huntington, West Virginia. Um, My question for you, I think all three of you at some point in time mentioned that there there are varying definitions of being Appalachian. So my question is, have you ever found yourself maybe prioritizing one type of Appalachian when you are choosing your stories to tell and maybe this is more exciting to me because this is what I think Appalachia is and this is what I want to highlight. Have you ever experienced that? I tell black stories. (laughs) (laughs) She chose. Yeah, Shalyn, when I get pulled over by the police and they ask me uh, with my California plates on the car if I'm from here, yeah, I'm from here. I'm six generations from here quickly, right? And then they're, do you like it better here? Do you like it better? I like it better here. I turned into some kind of like West Virginia person. I just didn't even really recognize that I was. Yes, officer. I mean, I, yeah, I will lean into it when, you know, I think it's sort of like life-saving. Um, but also... You know, the stare, you know, but it's true. You know what I mean? Like, I could, I don't know, but I think sometimes the Appalachian me that I'm stepping into, you know what I mean? Like, is like what part, like, what, what parts am I sort of like mimicking? What parts am I like, you know, have I inherited? You know, like, sort of that. But then also, you know, I think of like my Appalachian identity, like the way that I dress. It's high-low. I need, like, something expensive. I need something borrowed. You know what I mean? I need something handmade. You know, I need something that I bought off of the Internet cheaply on the late night when I probably shouldn't have been shopping. You know what I mean? Like, it's a, it's a quilt. It's a hodgepodge. You know what I mean? And it's just me, right? And I think that that comes with, like, you know, age and also a lot of exposure, not just inside Appalachia. Uh, not just inside Appalachia but also just like you know being able to see yourself out in the world and that's why I think like this this moment of like you know like travel and exposure so that you can see yourself in context of like other places and similarities and differences is is really important so I feel really settled in my Appalachian identity but I think that to get there I had to try on a couple of different uh, outfits uh, well, first of all, we did a award show in 2020, and Shalem was voted as Appalachian Rapper of the Year that year in our award show, so shout, sh- out. shout out to him. Uh, well deserved. And so when it comes to that, I think we, you know, John and I focus on our own stories and, and our own Appalachian experience for what we tell, and we try to, like, 
we try to not set barriers on what is and isn't Appalachian and what stories we want to include and not include. And I think it's important to us because it, we've had we've actually gotten pushed back for this before because oftentimes we we by default like when we're talking about trying to find someone quote unquote from the region on the show we we go by the the Appalachian Regional Commission definition acknowledging that it's a political map and doesn't really have anything to do much with culture but we do that because I think even though people from Alabama or people from uh, from other parts of Tennessee or Georgia or, or where have you have also been kind of forgotten and marginalized too. And so we want to make sure that, that those voices are well represented as well. And so I think um, we try to keep it broad because we, we're not in a position to tell people what being an Appalachian is or what it what it means and what it is. We, we can only share our experiences and our perspective. And I think that's something that we really try to emphasize. Um, but our own personal experiences are very interesting, very different from a lot of people we have on the show. I, I have no idea if that answers the question, but uh, hopefully that kind of hits somewhere on the mark. Yeah, I think, like I said, we definitely, we tell black stories, right? Whatever, however they come. Um, for me personally, my work, my own research is on Knoxville, black Knoxville. Um, and so it's important for me that urban Appalachia is a part of the narrative. So I pull a lot from places like Knoxville um, and Pittsburgh, and next season we're going down to Birmingham and get some Birmingham stories. So it's important to me that urban Appalachia, because a lot of times that's where a lot of black folks are, right? In our urban centers, there are larger black populations. So I try to make sure that those get in to the, to the narrative as well. And, and to think of things that we are not normally associating with black folks wherever, wherever we can. Um, so yeah, I pull from all, wherever. Yeah, it's important for those urban narratives to be a part of the conversation too. I think did you retweet yesterday? It was somebody tweeted Huntington is the LA of Appalachia. And then somebody responded, Morgantown is the Pittsburgh of Appalachia. And I was like, somebody needs to tell them. Like somebody needs to tell them. Well, thank you. I know we went over time this afternoon. And thank you so much for sticking it out, for being a part of this conversation. We really appreciate you all having us here. And of course, Natalie, thank you so much for all the work that you have put in and for not killing us for going over time. And yet, one final kind of thank you to our, our panel, Chakor from, from Appod Lacha, Nkeshi Elamine from the Black and Appalachia podcast, and Crystal Good from Black by God. If you would like a copy, she's got them up front. Thank you, folks. Follow us on the socials. Thank you all so much for listening. That was our show. I hope you all enjoyed that discussion as much as I did. And thank you all just just for being so supportive of Appalachia. It's been such a dream to be able to do this for the past, gosh, over two years. So thank you. And uh, we'll be back next week on a more, um, I guess, regular type of show like, like you're probably used to. So thank you and uh, talk to you soon.